Point Doom is normally a beautiful place. You could say, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But there's some pretty strong arguments in favor here. One, standing almost anywhere on the point, you can see a beautiful range of mountains covered in green. And then two, turn the other way, and it's ocean as far as the eye can see. Humpback whales and dolphins dot the sea, and on land, fuchsia bougainvilleas and banana palms dot the streets. It's almost like there's something in the air here, something mystical, something you just can't quite put your finger on. The Shumash Native Americans, the original people who lived here, thought so too. It's believed that they used Point Doom as a sun shrine. Lots of artifacts have been discovered here that suggest this was a sacred place for them. And Frederick Ringe, he also thought so. He and his wife May owned all of Malibu at one time. He used to camp out on Point Doom because he believed the air here could cure his rheumatic fever, a chronic disease he'd had since childhood. In all of Malibu, this was the place he came to heal. But by the early morning hours of Saturday, November 10th, 2018, that Point Doom was gone. It had been replaced by something very different. And everyone who grew up there knew that. They just didn't know by what. The rumors were pretty crazy. No one really knew what was gone and what wasn't. People said Malibu High was totally gone. Gas station was gone. And the markets are gone. And the entire mobile home park of 300 homes was gone. At one point, it was like the point was completely gone. Everything's gone. One thing they did know for sure, no one was allowed in. At this point, there were mandatory evacuations in place for Malibu, Ventura, and the surrounding areas. Altogether, over a quarter of a million people had been ordered from their homes the day before. And they weren't letting anyone back in. This is Sandcastles, a podcast about home, how we create it, and why we fight so hard for it. I'm your host, Adriana Cargill. In this season, we're following the Point Doom bombers as they race to defend their community from the Woolsey Fire in Malibu, California. This is the third episode, Under Siege. If you haven't listened to episodes one and two, please go take a listen. This one will make a lot more sense if you do. As a reminder, there will be explicit language in this episode. Okay, here we go. I grew up with fire. I mean, I grew up in Malibu, and there's a significant fire out there basically every five years and a really big one every 10 years or so. That's Keegan Gibbs. Keegan grew up surfing with Sam McGee, the carpenter slash surfer from the first episode. Keegan's house was on the way to go surf, so there were a lot of neighborhood hangs there growing up. It's where his parents still live. His dad is a composer and a musician who records in a studio he built in the backyard. His life's work, along with all his instruments, are stored in that studio. Like many people in Point Doom, Keegan believed that the point never burns. Never had felt too threatened because our area, Point Doom, hadn't burned in 40, 50 years or something like that. It had actually been 80 years, but that Friday night, it did. Keegan had spent the night before listening to radio dispatches from firefighters in the field. LA safety, copy that. We have resources Pre-position immediate need. Your strike team, pre-position immediate need. The whole corner is being hit really hard. You could tell in the, the LA County Fire Department's dispatcher's voice that stuff had, was starting to get completely out of control. He heard the desperation in their voices as they called for more resources, but not enough came. Mike, we have them both right now working the fire. And uh, it's outpaced them. We're uh, greater than five acres. He heard the fire overwhelm them as their calls for help went unanswered. 
and I'll advise out here shortly which one it is. Uh, I'm not a fire expert, guys, but this ain't looking good. We're probably going to want to start a pretty significant response. When Keegan woke up Friday, he knew this fire had the potential to be really bad, but hoped the PCH, or Pacific Coast Highway, would save them. We always kind of thought that PCH would be enough of a fire break that it wouldn't burn, but that clearly wasn't the case. At about 6 p.m. on Friday night, he saw his family home burning on the news. This is the house we first showed you. It is now gone. The one next door, fully involved too. The reporter is walking through thick clouds of smoke. And in the background is Keegan's family home. Or what's left of it, it's hard to tell what, if anything, survived the fire. After Woolsey jumped the PCH, the line residents thought would never be crossed. All bets were off. I think that was the moment that everything switched for me. Was, you feel really helpless at that moment. You go, what could I have done differently? Why did this happen? So when that happened, I, I really kind of was like, okay, what next? Next, he got his parents set up in a hotel. They'd evacuated earlier in the day. He got some food with them, and then he went to bed. But he didn't get much sleep. The next morning, on Saturday, November 10th, he woke up with a question and a choice. The question, what do you do now? And the choice, stay safely in L.A. where he lived with his wife and one-year-old daughter. Or go back to Point Doom and help. Although it wasn't really clear how. We had the strong urge where we had to get back in there and just figure out where my family was, the damage to his house. That's Kelly Jacobson, a lifelong friend of Keegan's. They grew up surfing together. Kelly's a lifeguard like his younger brother, and his older brother, and his dad. You remember his mom, Drew Jacobson, the preschool teacher with the amazing Sloppy Joes? His older brother was a lifeguard on duty at Zuma Beach Friday night, and Kelly hadn't heard from any of them, not since the firefront hit Point Doom. What they did know, in the news that morning, two people had been killed trying to escape the fire in Malibu. Their bodies hadn't been identified. The fire was at 0% containment. It had doubled in size overnight, from 35,000 acres to 70,000. And the Santa Anas, the winds that had caused this fire to explode in the first place, had died down by Saturday morning. A much-needed relief for firefighters. But it wasn't going to last long. Red flag warnings had been issued for Sunday through Tuesday. Power and almost all cell service to Point Doom were gone. Taking all this into account, the decision was made. Kelly and Keegan would go to Point Doom, no matter what. I pick up Keegan at probably 8 o'clock. Saturday morning, Kelly woke up at the crack of dawn and went to Home Depot to get supplies. Masks, a shovel, water. And we don't know exactly the plan. We don't know exactly how we're going to get in, but we're like, screw it. We're going we're gonna to drive through these roadblocks no matter what. And with a truck full of gear, they started driving. At Sunset Boulevard and PCH, they hit the first roadblock. I um, probably shouldn't say this, but I'm an LA County lifeguard too, so... <laughs> I put on all my uniform stuff and was basically, I just stopped the car and just step out and be like, hello, I'm going to relieve the lifeguards at Zuma Beach. My name's Kelly Jacobson, look, you know, you can look up my ID, here you go. And then I get back in the car and we just drive and the cops were all just like, okay, <laughs> good enough. They improvised at each roadblock, determined to get in. Keegan needed to do something to ease his feeling of helplessness and Kelly, needed to find his family. As they drove, they started to take in their hometown as they had never seen it before. Once we got to about Malibu Canyon on PCH heading west, it truly felt like the apocalypse. It's eerie because you drove in and then just like, you saw this, there was nobody on the road, there was nobody around. 
All the lights were out, no traffic lights, and then just the smoke. Everything was glowing either from the sun and the orange smoke or because stuff was still on fire. Everything was just still on fire. And it just got eerier and eerier and eerier until you got into like the corral zone where it's just where you saw all the telephone wires down, fire still burning all in the hills, hot spots everywhere, just flames popping up everywhere. They hit more roadblocks as they got closer to Point Doom. And we would pull up to a roadblock with the sheriffs and they just looked at us like we were aliens, like, what are you doing out here? And they were trying to shield their mouths with their shirts from the smoke. So we got out to Point Doom and just started driving around to different people's houses and stuff we knew to check on to see if what was there, what wasn't there. Keegan's home wasn't just important to him. Kelly again. It's where I spent countless hours in that house, just going surfing and just playing video games and just hanging out with him and his family and my family and all the kids from the neighborhood. When they got to Keegan Street, downed power lines draped the road. Thick clouds of smoke and haze made visibility low. You could look directly into the sun without it hurting your eyes. The gully behind his house, once filled with 40 years of chaparral buildup, was now moonscaped. It was covered in ash and the charred black remains of plants. This gully, and other ones like it, provided fuel for the fire to snake across the point. CBS 2's Greg Mills shows us the situation in the Point Doom area. This part of Malibu was hit especially hard. Two homes burned right across the street, and this side, five homes in a row. The reporter is standing on Keegan Street, about three houses away from his. Here on Doom Drive, firefighters race in to try to save this home. Despite their best efforts, this becomes the 19th home destroyed by this fire on this stretch of this street. Homes were still very much on fire when Keegan and Kelly arrived. We eventually ended up making it over to my parents' house. Reluctantly, I, I was really hesitant to go by there because I just, at first, I didn't really want to see it. When they pulled up, all that was left was the red brick chimney, a piece of their metal roof, and the twisted remains of the spiral staircase. All of it still smoking. Both of the neighbors' houses were gone too. Keegan was pretty devastated and pretty shook up. But then they saw something they didn't expect. So when I got to the property and saw the studio, I just ran past the house. I didn't even look at the house. I knew the house was already gone. When I saw the studio, I was like, oh my, are you kidding? Is it still there? It was still there, untouched. They call it the woodshed because it's made of cedar shingles. It was only 40 or 50 feet away from the house that he'd seen on the news, totally engulfed by a massive wall of flames the size of telephone poles. Their studio, which uh, is like one of their main sources of income where they record like a bunch of artists and they have all these files of like amazing music and stuff somehow survived. So that was a, that was a nice treat when we got there. That was a big deal for Keegan's family. I mean, from that moment when we first saw the studio was alive, that was when we first started being like, okay, we can kind of help here, actually, because there was burning stuff all around still. It seemed like a miracle. How could anything made of wood survive a wall of flames? Actually, experts say the majority of houses lost in wildfires don't burn down when the fire front comes through. I know that seems crazy, but most actually catch fire from embers floating around in the air. According to Jack Cohen, the preeminent researcher on wildfire behavior and home ignition, some 85 to 90% of homes burn this way. Most of this either happens before the front hits or in the 24 hours following. But wherever there's still house burning or a fire front creating embers somewhere near, there is still a chance houses can burn down. So, this was their chance to help. They got buckets of water from the pool and started throwing them on burning patches. I gotta stop here and say this is where the story gets messy. Everyone I interviewed agrees the following things happened, but there's a lot of disagreement about when and in what order. Often, when I'd ask them to pinpoint a time, they just have no idea. 
My brain is like so scrambled on all of it. I have no idea. Can't remember who it was. From sunset until 2 a.m. was a total blur. I can't remember exactly what time. I honestly have no idea what time we were here. If she says they were here Saturday, then they were probably here Saturday. I don't remember. <laughs> I really don't know. And then I think I have a vague memory of someone having a porta potty. Most of the people I talked to didn't sleep or slept very little for many days in a row. Researchers have found that sleep deprivation and extreme stress may affect the way people track time. So it's not unheard of that these events are jumbled in people's memory. I couldn't rely on personal accounts, so I used timestamp photos, other journalists reporting, and cross-reference interviews to piece together this story. One person actually filmed their wristwatch in the videos, so I know the time is correct. We haven't met him yet, but when we do, it will make sense why he had the foresight to document everything so meticulously. But as best as I can tell, this is more or less how things happened, starting Saturday morning, November 10th. Sometime around mid-morning, Sam McGee and Bo Bigelow, longtime friends of Keegan, showed up at his place and started helping. Here's Sam. We had chainsaws, we cut down some dead trees, we cleared some brush. Sam's a carpenter, and he had a bunch of power tools at his parents' house on the point. It had survived the fire, along with the Bigelow's house. Thanks to Sam, Bo, Tim, and a group of neighbors. They'd stayed up all night on Friday. That was the night the Woolsey fire hit with full force. And where we last left them in the first episode. For hours after the initial fire had passed, we were putting out hot spots right there for, for hours. I couldn't tell you how long. And it gets like kind of blurry after that because nights turn into mornings and, and it just like, we didn't sleep. You know, we didn't sleep. He told me they fought the fire all night at the Bigelow's. And when they thought things were under control-ish, they drove to Zuma Beach and parked there. They figured they'd be safe from the fire creeping up on them. They ended up sleeping in the back of his truck for maybe an hour, at most. But mostly, Sam's mind was spinning. Anxiety. Anxiety of just like, you know, because I have, and I have so many friends around here that I've like grown up with this whole time and a lot of friends I have over in Malibu Park and, you know, just like in all the little neighborhoods around here. And so we were like mostly here, but I was like wondering like, I wonder how his house is over there. And like, you know, when we get a second, I want to run over there and see if we can, you know, go check on so-and-so's house. As soon as it was light enough out on Saturday morning, they started driving around to see what happened. Here's a video Sam shot. A heads up. The radio is pretty loud in the background. All right, I'll pull over up here and my phone will start popping too. You can hear the exhaustion in Sam's voice. Look at Keegan's dude. The studio might be there. The studio is there, dude. Wiping out areas. The spiral staircase in the living room. Following house after house, it hit the Pacific and several places. Uh, took out a number of beach wow. homes. Well, they have not been able to tally the number of homes lost, of course, widespread destruction in Thousand Oaks and Westlake. That's when they ran into Kelly Jacobson and Keegan at his parents' house. Here's Sam. We put the pool pump in the pool and we sprayed down everything. You know, we got everything wet and we tried to do what we could to, like, have some sort of, like, defendable space over at his parents' house. That was important because fires were still burning all around the house. You can hear the flames in the yard next to them in this video Sam shot. Here's Kelly Jacobson again. Put out the hotspots, put out everything around and just don't lose anything else. And from there it was go time. We're just gonna be crazy about this and we're gonna go after it and we're gonna make sure nothing else burns. This became their rallying cry. And as the day went on, they started gathering more and more friends who'd either stayed or found a way to sneak back into Malibu. I heard stories of people coming in on ATVs through mountain passes, or others, like Brianna Strange, coming in by boat. Her arrival was crucial to what happens next. 
but we're not there yet. First, let's back up a second. Brianna grew up with Kelly and all the other surfer guys on the point, and her father still lives in that same house. On Friday night, they knew they couldn't drive in because of the roadblocks. So, plan B was that her dad had a boat in Los Angeles, about 20 miles from Malibu. But it wouldn't start. Which was a gift from God, because that would have been really bad, and I would not have let him go alone, and I surely did not want to go. I don't like the dark either. So the dark on a boat into a fire, like this is not a good idea. But the next morning, she did end up going with her dad. Even though I was very, very scared, there wasn't really a question of whether I would go or not. I think I, I had to for some reason. It's like a very strong pull to do that. That strong pull had a lot to do with her little brother, Johnny, who had passed away just three years earlier. My dad was willing to risk his life to get back to the house to make sure it didn't burn. And it's not because he was scared of never being able to rebuild. It's because I think losing the memories in that house would have been too much. And all their memories are tied to Johnny's old room, frozen in time. His sword collection, surfboards, his ashes. For her and her dad, these items keep his memory alive. I knew that if my brother was here, he would have been on the front lines and doing everything he could. He was fearless in life. At 17, he'd already summited all seven of the world's highest mountains. He'd also been to both the North and South Poles. He surfed big waves, did daredevil tricks, skateboarding, skydiving, and base jumping. The latter ended up killing him. Part of me sort of felt obligated to be present. I, I also know that if he was here, there's no way he would have let me stay there. He would have been like, get out of here. <laughs> Brianna and her dad left early, at 5 a.m. on Saturday. It was still dark out. These sounds are from videos she shot on the way there. In them, the sun has a dark tangerine halo, and its reflection sends blood-red sparkles dancing over the water. I remember being really shocked when I realized that we were passing by Big Doom on the boat because I didn't even recognize where we were along the coast because it was so smoky. When they got to Point Doom, the L.A. County Sheriff wouldn't let them dock their boat. No one was allowed to enter Malibu, not even by sea. So they motored away and improvised again. So we end up swimming in at Zuma, and I remember being like, this is how you die. You, like, jump off a boat in the middle of a fire in your clothes, and you swim to shore. You have no idea. I'm like, this is insane. I don't want to do this. But at that point, I just did it. Their little dinghy boat was broken, so swimming in was their only option. From the beach, they hiked up the bluffs, determined to get to their house. It's right next to the cliffside trailhead gate that leads down to Little Doom Beach. You might remember this gate from the last episode. Kirby Kotler talked about it. It's the same gate the Point Doom bombers used to get down to the beach back in the 70s. The one everyone was trying to break into. It was one of the few access points to surf breaks. When Brianna and Johnny were little, their parents actually bought Kirby's house. And that's where they grew up. Once Kirby's family left, Brianna's took over the gate access. Kirby knew Johnny from when he was a little kid. Here's Kirby. He just, he would pull me aside and he just thought it was the shit that I, he lived in the house and the bedroom that I used to live in. He goes, dude, I've heard all about you, man. I, I want to hear the stories, man. Stories about the Point Doom bombers, which Kirby knew them all because he was one of the group's early members. And I said, yeah, someday. And he was too young. That was a problem. <laughs> he was doing crazy stuff, but he was too young, and I didn't want to taint his brain with the sh stuff I had done. God, what a loss, man. So we walked down to my house. The house was still standing, which was amazing. There was a burning piece of plywood in the yard that was like 10 feet from the outdoor furniture. And I think if it had hit that furniture, it would have been a much different story. But we were super fortunate. So I threw that in the pool. 
After she knew things would be okay at her house, she went to find out what happened to the rest of the neighborhood. And that's when I saw that one of my best friend's houses was gone, one of the houses I grew up in was gone, Doom Drive was decimated, Wandermere was decimated, Larkspur decimated. It was shocking. So then I drove down a different street and I saw Kelly Jacobson standing by um, the parking lot for Point Doom Elementary. I was like, hey, do you guys need anything? They did need something, in fact. Their group was pretty aimless at this point. They were just sort of driving around and stopping where they saw random fires and then putting them out. Their biggest hurdle to saving even more homes was that they had no way to communicate and coordinate. If you wanted to talk to someone, you had to physically go find them. Kelly told her they needed walkie-talkies. He works in film production and was trying to get his hands on some. So Brianna got back in her boat and headed to Los Angeles. By nightfall on Saturday, the fire was at 5% containment. The winds had died down for the moment, but by Sunday morning, they were forecasted to be up to 50 miles per hour. But Keegan and his friends didn't know about the Santa Anas headed their way. Electricity, internet, and cell service were still gone. They were pretty much cut off from the outside world. News coverage of what it was like to be in Point Doom. But it feels like we're on Mars or outer space out here. We barely have cell service. It is a ghost town out here with mandatory evacuations, no cable, no internet, no phone or anything like that. It's just very deserted out here. Only people that we're seeing, firefighters and then some last... Uh, This is another challenge. Uh, Power lines that are down across the streets. We're told these have been de-energized. Of course, we're not going to take a chance of getting too close. Left a lot of flames still going and some blue flames that you see there, meaning that the gas is still on. While they didn't know much more than what was right in front of them, one thing they were sure of, if they left Point Doom, they weren't getting back in. Right now there are downed power lines, there are burnt power poles, there are broken gas lines, and there are problems with the water service. So until those very important Uh, utilities are fixed. It's not safe for people to be in Malibu. And so we request that you um, heed the mandatory evacuation notice. That was Malibu City Manager Reva Feldman in Los Angeles. This was the official refrain in those early days. So many people wanted to get back in. But the roads were shut. The group on Point Doom had now grown to around 10 guys. Keegan Gibbs, Kelly Jacobson, Sam McGee, Tyler Hopman, and a few others. For Tyler, Saturday was an especially tough day. He found out that his uncle's house, brother's house, and his parents' house had all been completely destroyed. Man, the feelings are just the spectrum of feelings and how you felt and... I didn't know whether to feel frustrated or sad or angry or just, like, bewildered or wowed. Like, there's so many different things going through your head. You're just like, most of it is just like, oh, fuck, this really sucks. Like, this is horrible. I spoke to him during COVID times. So we met in a park, and there's some background noise here. His parents' house was an especially tough blow because his family had built every inch of it from scratch. My parents bought the property back in the 70s and uh, just moved up there with nothing, with just a VW van and some tents and my uh, two older brothers. And that's when my dad started to, you know, construct a house. His dad is a Finnish carpenter, but even as a little kid, Tyler helped out. I was the only person small enough to fit inside the ducting areas to pull the ductings around corners of the house. And so I had to get in there with, I still remember, with coveralls and goggles on. It took 14 years to build. It was a three-story pyramid. No joke, like an actual pyramid, like the ones in Egypt. The top was made of glass, so sitting in the living room at night, they could see the stars. Every detail was made by the family, 
Tyler's grandma made the stained glass, and the family even handmade and painted their own kitchen tiles. That's the mentality I got brought up in, building everything ourselves. Even building their cars from scratch. And that clearly stuck with him. Today, he's a mechanical engineer. He grew up in Trancas Canyon. It's about a 15-minute drive from the beach at Point Doom. But it's still pretty rural up there. Kills a lot of rattlesnakes. A lot of rattlesnakes, and we'd eat them, and they taste like freaking chicken. It's awesome. It's, like, really good. Like, make little hot dogs out of them. They killed them with machetes as 10-year-olds. We'd make really bitchin' like rattlesnake belts out of it. And that's what we did up on the mountaintop. Tyler's been friends with the Jacobsons for as long as he can remember. Oh, Drew is my second mom. I love her, like, so dearly. She's, like, honestly the best person of all time. And, of course... The best Sloppy Joes of all time, bar none. Like, she's... She's got, I don't know why, but it's like the, the best. I love Drew. He learned to surf with the Jacobsons. But up in the canyons, Tyler was also influenced by the older ranch culture of Malibu. You know, do it yourself and handle it. And like, that's what we all kind of experienced during the fire. Kind of going for full circle was, shit, we're kind of on our own. Sound familiar? You know, the fire department, in our eyes, in a lot of ways, fucking blew it. And they were standing around all during a lot of the fire and just not doing anything when helms were on fire. And we're like, shit. I'm going to stop him right there and say not all of Keegan's group share this opinion. But a lot of people in Malibu did. They were furious. Before Woolsey, many in the community expected that the fire department would handle it. His brother packed in a hurry, thinking, The fire department's got it handled and they'll be able to squelch it. Now everyone thought there would be some type of response or support up there. In the past, the fire departments had a lot more success. But nothing, nothing in Malibu history compares to the speed, size, and intensity of Woolsey. On top of that, they only got around half the resources they requested for the fire in the first three days, sometimes even less. On Friday night alone, firefighters on the Malibu coast had between 7 and 26 inches. And to defend highly populated neighborhoods like Point Doom, they would have needed at least 100 engines at a bare minimum. Ideally, 200. They were also overwhelmed with 911 calls and ordered to use what little resources they had to save lives, not structures. The L.A. County Incident Report, published after the fire, referred to Woolsey as a perfect storm event. This perfect storm started on Wednesday, November 7th, if you remember, with a fatal mass shooting at the Borderline Grill in Ventura that needed police and fire resources. Then, the next day, the Hill Fire started in Ventura. That same day, Woolsey started, and... About 500 miles to the north, the campfire started up in Paradise. Let me repeat that. Three big fires in the same day. And the campfire wasn't just any big fire. It would become the deadliest in California history. Emergency first responders were absolutely stretched thin. No question. But... That didn't change the reality Tyler and his friends were now living. Abandonment and their community in ashes. We're like, shit, let's go put out this fucking, like, our elementary school teacher's home. Like, let's go save that house and I'll squelch that fire here in that property. Oh my God, we see smoke over there. Let's go put that out. Like, we just, the more and more we did, the more we're like taking ownership of what we did. And we're like, shit, we could, we're doing a lot of good here. Let's keep on doing it. Their anger, sadness, frustration, shock, it all became fuel for action. This is our home. We want to fight for it. And like, we got that chance to honestly put in maximum effort into fighting for our our turf, our home and our community. I can't stress enough how crucial it is for this group to be able to communicate. It was their biggest hurdle to putting out as many fires as possible. 
This was one of the biggest problems during Woolsey, even for the pros. The L.A. County Incident Report said better communication was one of the main things they needed to improve. For Keegan's group, during the day, it was so smoky it was hard to know where the fires were still burning. But with the power out at night, it was easier to see them in the dark. So they drove around. Video clips from driving that night. They stopped where they saw a fire, and there was still plenty of it. Here's Sam. If you remember, he refused to evacuate and had already been fighting the fire for two days now. We're driving around, and we keep seeing this other person driving around, too, and we're like, who is that? You know, like, what's this person doing? They were driving a gray 1989 Mercedes convertible. And at one point, we're stopped in front of somebody's house, whatever, and the car pulls up. So I saw three white trucks loaded up with young guys in them. Some of them had particle masks. Some of them just had rags over their faces, and they had a lot of shovels, uh, a lot of garden tools. There might have been a chainsaw in there. And it was less their equipment than it was just very obvious that these were guys who decided to, to act, to do something. This guy gets out, and he's like, hey, what are you guys doing, you know? And we were like, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to help put out these hot spots and this and that. And he's like, yeah, me too. So just instinctively asked if I could help them because... It was very obvious that one person in this situation was not going to be able to do anything. But a small group of people that was working cooperatively was very likely to have a a positive effect. This encounter is the moment where everything shifts. Where a disorganized band of friends trying to do their best begins to turn into something entirely different. And I just went up to them without really knowing them and asked if I could help, and uh, they said yes. Sam quickly figured out who it was. And he, like, comes walking up, and it's Robert. And so now Robert, in high school, was, I believe, a year older than me. We didn't know each other well. We recognized each other and would, like, say hi, and, like, that was about it. But even after all those years, Sam knew it was Robert Spangle. So I saw him, and I'm like, Robert? He's like, is that you, Sam? I'm like, yeah, man. Like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I live over on Birdview, you know? Like, I didn't know that he lived here. And it was like, all right, cool, man. Like, let's go. We're all doing this together. From then on, we were working together. This misfit collection of guys who'd grown up on the point were now working together in a situation they'd never imagined. Now it was their generation's turn to protect their home. They stayed out all night, wandering the point. Many of the gullies were still on fire. These are from video clips that Robert shared with me from that night. They shoveled dirt onto fires. They didn't just favor houses they knew. They wandered into strangers' yards and tried to do what they could. This guy has logs leading up to his house. I just moved them from next to the house. They spent two to three hours in one of the gullies alone, trying to put out a big fire there. At some point, around 3 a.m. that Saturday night, they called it quits, then headed to one of the guys in the group's house. It was then that Robert proposed an idea. I suggested that if we took a radio, someone could find a walkie-talkie, and I was up on the hill, I could direct the rest of the guys by radio to where I was seeing fires or where I was seeing smoke. Here's Sam's version of Robert's idea. I'm going to go up to the top of the Big Doom headlands, and if you guys give me the radios, I can make them work at a, like, at a longer distance and all this stuff. And we were just like, dude, what are you talking about, man? Like, are you high? You know, like, what are you talking about? Robert wasn't high. What he was talking about, he learned in the military, the Marines to be exact. He served in South America, North Africa, and had done two tours in Afghanistan. More specifically, he was a reconnaissance Marine with a specialty in radio operations. So it would be one person dispatching the group rather than the group just driving around burning gasoline trying to figure out where a fire was potentially. Gasoline was a precious commodity and a rare one. All the gas stations were closed, and the mandatory evacuation made it near impossible to get any more. Point Doom was cut off from the rest of Malibu by the PCH, and that's where the roadblocks were. You needed gas to power your generator, to run your fridge, charge your phone, do 
do just about anything. A note here. The Big Doom Headlands, where Robert's talking about going, is the highest point of land in the area. It's actually the point of Point Doom. It was used in World War II as a lookout for Japanese submarines or other enemy forces, and it's the one place on the point where you can get situational awareness. So we had, at that point, I think, two children's walkie-talkies, like, uh, maybe they were Fisher-Price, I don't know. Before dawn on Saturday night, technically Sunday morning, he went up to the top of the headlands. I took one up to the hill and... uh, built a kind of field expedient antenna for it with a, with a trash can lid. I had to ask him to say that again. Uh, built a field expedient antenna with a trash can lid and then set up a little desk on this hill with a, a sleeping bag and some binoculars. And that first night, I spent every night after about every 45 minutes, I would like wake up, scan for 15 minutes, and then report if I saw anything and then go back to sleep. I just want to repeat that. Every 45 minutes for the entire night, he would get up and check out everything from his perch high on the point, and then radio to the rest of the group what he saw. This went on for five days. And I believe him because it was Robert who put his wristwatch in photos and videos. So I know the times are correct. And then during the day, I'd just be up and scanning periodically and then uh, directing what what turned into three teams and a headquarters element um, to the different fires and smoke that we were seeing. Keegan and Kelly made up the headquarters element and divided the group into teams. On Sunday morning, the fire was at 10% containment and had burned 83,000 acres. The winds had died down somewhat on Saturday, but by Sunday evening, they returned to breathe new life into Woolsey. It wasn't exactly comfortable living up there. The wind was blowing at a sustained 50 miles an hour. A lot of ash in the a lot of ash in the air. A lot of it's still pretty hot. You had a lot of like hard particles coming down, some bits of board in houses and things like that. And I mean you couldn't really you couldn't really see. The air was just kind of burning and very, very dry. But he didn't come down from the headlands. Not once. We would occasionally go up there, bring him whatever he needed, but he and we'd call him at like 3 in the morning and be like, Robert, it's pretty cold. Do you want to come down? And he would just stick it out. That was Leo Harrington. Leo was able to get through the roadblocks with a Malibu City Council member named Skylar Peak. But Robert never came down, not even to eat. Other guys in the group would bring him food, sometimes on dirt bikes. This is a clip from video Robert shot during his time at the Headlands. You guys gonna take off or what? (laughs) While Robert stayed up there, everyone else started sleeping at Leo's house. It became a staging ground for the group. It wasn't close to a gully, so they knew they'd be safe from fires. And growing up, it was a place they'd always hung out. Felt natural to be there. Kelly Jacobson grew up in a trailer park nearby with his family the same one where I met his mom, Drew. And they'd known Leo and his family their whole lives. So the first night was just darkness and your friends, and you were only, you're only able to know who you're talking to by their voice. Remember, there was no power. But they already knew where everything was. Everybody knows where the blankets and stuff are, so it was kind of like, just grab whatever <laughs> space you can. and. At one point, There were up to 12 people sleeping in beds, couches on the floor, and his house is not a large one. But it didn't really matter. We didn't sleep all that much for the first four or five days anyway. I think it was a mixture of adrenaline and wanting to help people and the lawlessness of the atmosphere that made us want to just go out. Not like in a a vigilante type of way at all. It was actually the polar opposite. It was like the fact that no one's here, let's run around and kind of like take it into our own hands and go help people. And because the power was still out, so were everyone's video cameras and security systems. And it wasn't exactly easy to call 911 either. As Saturday blurred into Sunday, Leo's house quickly became a meeting place for more than just their group. At its most crowded point, there could have been like 50 people here 
you know, in the driveway or inside or eating or just sleeping or kind of doing whatever, taking a rest from running around all day. They'd stop by Leo's to share what food they had, drink a beer if they could find one, and share their stories. In the face of, like, how horrible the events were here, we definitely had a good time just because it was the camaraderie between everybody was definitely brought everyone closer together, especially my friend groups. The good times were mixed with the bad, but there's no other place Tyler Hopman would have wanted to be. Remember, he's the kid who grew up in a pyramid in Trancas Canyon. I know I was going through a lot of stuff. My brother's house burned down, my parents' house, my uncle's house, but I felt like helping the community out was the best way for me to to like decompress and that's what really got me through it. There were other signs of resilience popping up, not just at Leo's. In addition to the bare essentials, Robert brought something else with him to the headlands. We strung up an American flag up here for like identification purposes and hopefully it just made people feel better. Not that we were any kind of authority, but seeing the American flag during a disaster tends to be an uplifting experience and kind of a, a rallying symbol. On Sunday, November 11th, Brianna returned in her dad's boat. She'd managed to get a hold of 25 production walkie-talkies, the ones Kelly had put the word out for the day before. She also brought gas, reluctantly. Being scared of fires is a horrible way to start out an adventure where you're on a boat surrounded by cans of gasoline, taking it into one of the largest fires in California history. It wasn't one of the largest fires, but still a major and destructive one. She still did it anyways, because her friends needed it to run their generators so they could eat, see at night, drive their cars to put out spot fires, and check on the elderly or people who couldn't leave their homes. At one point, we put this wet towel over the engine room, and I asked one of the kids who was helping us get gas, I was like, what's that for? He's like, well, you know, if any of the gas spills and it hits the engine on the boat, like, it's not good. It's like, oh, this is, this is really dangerous. And then I heard other boat owners being like, no, we don't want gas on our boat. We're not doing that. Um, but I guess, you know, I didn't really know any better. Brianna had brought supplies, but getting them on shore was another matter entirely. The sheriff still wouldn't let them dock, and their Zodiac still wasn't working. So they had to figure something else out. For Kelly and his friends, the answer was obvious. We took longboards and uh, big stand-up paddle boards, just the biggest boards we could find, and paddled them out there and just balanced gasoline on our boards and uh, paddled them in through the waves and the shore break. They'd take the walkie-talkie or gas can off the boat, put it on the board, and paddle it in. There were some waves, small, maybe knee to waist high. The gas in the walkie-talkies weren't secured by ropes or anything, just pure balancing. But Kelly's an expert. I've recovered, like, the dead bodies as a lifeguard. The body was also not attached to his board. So I've used a surfboard for that before. But using a surfboard in that capacity was a pretty dang new experience. A new experience, but he had the skills to do it. Keegan here. It sounds crazy, but it wasn't crazy at the time. As surfers, you feel really comfortable in the ocean. You feel comfortable on a surfboard, so it doesn't... I mean, people that don't surf, I guess, would probably think it's, like, really dangerous. or It definitely was not. At this point, a few other people from Malibu were meeting similar supply boats, but the effort was still pretty small. I want to acknowledge that Keegan's group was not the only one taking matters into their own hands. Remember, Malibu has a tradition of everyday people staying during wildfires. Paradise Cove, which is on the east side of Point Dune, had its own group with Tim Ryan and Ryan Addison at the helm. Malibu West had Tim Bigelow and Mikey Pearson, among others. Zoomer has had its guys too. And there are more people in different areas of Malibu. But nothing, nobody else, even comes close to the size, scale, and efficiency Keegan's group would soon achieve. When Brianna got to shore around midday on Sunday, she was greeted by Sam and Andrew. Well, sort of. 
it was so hot and we went down to the beach to go pick everything up and Brianna and her dad were coming in with the walkie-talkies and me and Andrew we were just like fuck it you know and we just like got naked and went and just like jumped in and swam around in the water and shit for a while. Maybe not the worst idea considering no one has showered in three days. And everyone was looking at us just like what's wrong with you guys you know like fuck it's fucking hot you know and it's like we're just not sleeping and we're not doing great mentally you know. And he wasn't the only one. Everyone in the group was starting to feel the exhaustion. But they kept going. Kelly Jacobson again. In hindsight, like, it's really stupid not to sleep and <laughs> do dangerous things. But that was kind of the mindset at the beginning. And from what we had seen just that first night, it was kind of like, it's going down still. Like, there's no time to rest. Both Sam and his childhood friend Bo had been up pretty much non-stop since Friday. They'd been successfully defending their family homes, but the toll? Around 72 hours with no sleep. And Sam was starting to lose it. There was a certain point where we were at Leo's house and Leo grabbed me and was like, dude, you need to go to sleep. And I was like, I'm not going to sleep. I can't go to sleep. And he's like, dude, you're, you have to go to sleep. Sam was beyond exhausted. I had lost my voice. I couldn't really talk from like yelling and probably from breathing all of the smoke and just whatever. But Leo kept insisting and eventually. And we went to go to a supply pickup at Paradise Cove and I went to Paradise Cove and I just started getting the craziest tunnel vision. I thought I was just gonna like faint, you know? And I was like, kind of like coming like in and out and it was all gnarly. And then I like grabbed Leo and I was like, all right, dude, take me to your house. I gotta go to sleep. When the walkie-talkies arrived on Point Doom, it marked another turning point for Keegan and his friends. While Sam got some rest, they gave a walkie-talkie to Robert at the Headlands, replacing the Fisher-Price one, and gave the rest out to their friend group, which was now about 30 strong. And not a moment too soon, because their operations were about to get a lot bigger. That, on the next episode of Sandcastles. A note on this episode, containment numbers were taken from LA Times reporting that used data from the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, or CAL FIRE. The incident report I refer to is the County of Los Angeles after action review of the Woolsey Fire incident. If you want to check them out, there are links to them on our website under the third episode of Sandcastles at wavemakermedia.org. This episode was reported, produced, and hosted by me, Adriana Cargill. Editing by Sasha Woodruff. Story editing by Adam Whitney Nichols. Mixing and mastering by Kathleen Yor. Music by Marcelo Dale Vieira. Theme song by Medium Zach. Fact checking by Audrey Regan. Graphic design by Tomas Villasenor. This is an independent production of Wavemaker Media. We're a new indie shop, so if you enjoyed it, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate it five stars. And if you have time, leave a review. I know every podcast asks for this, but it's especially important for independent podcasts like this one. Also, please share on social media or send to your friends. Thanks for listening, and see you on the next episode of Sandcastles.